Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn from Focus Compounding on air live with Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? It's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It's going great. We hope it's going great with everybody else as well. If this is the first time you're tuning in with us, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, if you uh, have never stumbled upon our podcast before, well, let me tell you something. You are in for a treat. Coming up on almost five years of podcasts, more than 350 episodes, a YouTube backlog going back a long time, a blog post going back a very long time. And be sure to check out all of our content uh, by going through all of our backlog on the podcast and by going to focuscompounding.com. You could type in any investing term that comes to mind, and I promise you, there's going to be a few articles talking about whatever's on your mind. So go to focuscompounding.com and check out all of our work that we've put out on the internet over the years. If you're interested in learning more about our money management services, you could reach out to me at andrew at focuscompounding.com. You could hit that invest with us tab on our website at focuscompounding.com. All that information is going to be in the show notes below the video or uh, in the about section on the podcast app. Uh, what is Focus Compounding? We are a long only equity focused hedge fund uh, located in Dallas, Texas. We focus on uh, overlooked stocks. These are securities that go overlooked by other market participants for various reasons, and then bringing our high quality analytical skills uh, to this pocket of the market that goes overlooked by other investors. Uh, we just feel like that's a great pond to fish in. So uh, to get more information on that, you can go to the Invest With Us tab on focuscompounding.com and there will be a deck that you can download. Uh, we do have a hedge fund, like I said, and we do have a managed accounts uh, business for individuals that do not meet the qualifications for the hedge fund. Uh, the minimums are different. The incentives uh, fees are different. Management fees are different. A high watermark in the fund where, for example, in the managed accounts, there is no high watermark. Uh, so there's pros and cons between both products. And you can get information on that in the deck on focuscompounding.com. And you can reach out to me at Android Focus Compounding to start that conversation. Uh, we are registered with the state of Texas. Be sure to check out all of the disclaimers that are in the show notes, the about section of uh, the podcast app, and of course, on our website. So today is November 16th, 2022. Can't believe we're already in the middle of November for the year. Uh, SP 500 is down about 17% year to date. The 10 year yield has uh, come down uh, to 3.692%. Crude oil still around 85 bucks a barrel and natural gas $6.17. Um, uh, last week, inflation came out and uh, beat expectations. Still incredibly high, but beat expectations, which uh, sent the tenure down. Um, but I don't want to spend too much time on macro and market data this week uh, because we have a good amount of questions and snap stocks to go through from Twitter. So the first question is, what do you think about investing in larger companies? Due to investor sentiment, it seems like sometimes they fall harder 
and might be more undervalued than smaller companies. Some of Buffett's most successful investments weren't particularly small. And then he references Coke and Washington Post as an example. Uh, I think it makes perfect sense. Uh, we don't do it. That's not our strategy. I think that usually it has to do with more specific things that are an issue for the company or the industry or some sort of panic in the market usually. So I've talked before about how you kind of have stocks that are overlooked, so they're cheap because they're neglected, and stocks that are hated, and so they're cheap, you know, contempt. And those kind of two things, contempt and neglect, explain a lot of the mispricing of things when they're too cheap. So you're more likely to be investing in something that's controversial in some way, where people under, where people are watching the situation, but their, their view might be too extreme or something like that. You know, um, whereas with a small stock, it might be that it's just not as recognized. So if you invest in Meta, it might be cheap, but obviously people are looking at it and understand what the situation is. It's just you would have to have a different view of it than other people do. It's not likely that a lot of people are just not aware of the stock and not aware of what's going on with it. What do you think is Buffett's most successful investment on like a percentage basis other than Berkshire Hathaway? Um, Mid-continent tab card company. Oh, wow. Okay. So do you want to explain that situation? That's a, uh, a business that's not talked about them uh, too often when it, you know, right. talk Priv about it. Private investment. It was a company that was uh, offered to him um, to invest in initially, and he turned it down. Um, it was going into the um, tab card business, uh, card printing, which was used to put into... Um, you put them in, you feed them into computers at the time. This was back in the, you know, um, 1960s, 1950s. Um, so IBM, uh, was the one that would, this would all be going into basically. And at the time they produced all of it, it's sort of a disposable product and a consumable, but they make the equipment. And so they were going into compete with IBM and, uh, they were more centrally located, probably delivered faster on time, more accessible, whatever. And they got up and starting with a very, very thin capitalization and they started to be successful with it. And so like a year in or something, he put in a lot of money with them at that point and they had very high returns. IBM also in that part of their business probably had incredibly high returns in the actual, you know, so it's equivalent of saying like, let's say someone dominated in printers or something. Let's say, you know, Dell or whatever sold every printer that was out there, but someone said, I'm going to make some, um, ink to go into Dell printers and compete directly with Dell. So at first he thought that's not going to work out, you know, but once he saw the numbers, he invested in it. And, uh, I would guess the compound return that was very, very high, certainly higher than 30%. Maybe it's in the 50% plus or something. I mean, we don't know all the details of it, but it was incredibly high based on some numbers that people have said, Alice Schroeder, for instance. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I remember the framework that she put forward was that he thought about it as like a 15% earnings yield that he felt would grow over time. Isn't that correct? Yeah. So the uh, company was actually, I would say their payback period on CapEx and stuff was, uh, we, from what she said, it sounds like it was over a hundred percent. I mean, you then had to pay taxes and stuff, but basically if they bought a um, card press for a um, hundred thousand dollars or something, they were able to generate a hundred thousand dollars in incremental EBIT from what it sounds like. So, um, you know, it's like when they talk about, you know, we'll open up the supermarket and our payback period is four or five years, whatever. This one was like a year. Um, and uh, Buffett had a few others that were very, very small. 
that probably have very high annualized returns. I mean, when you get into annualized returns, some special situations probably were even higher. Um, people have asked me that, you know, what's your most successful investment in terms of annualized re return? Yeah, in terms of annualized return, it's something obscure and not that important because it would be something that I was invested in for less than a year and that wasn't a huge part of the portfolio, right? The things that you're invested in for a long time and a big part of the portfolio are more important. So he had some like that, but he also had super nano caps, basically. If you look, you know, he's mentioned a few of them, but, uh, you know, he sold some Geico to buy, what was it? Um, Western life insurance, uh, mm -hmm. something like that. Um, he was in Genesee Valley gas, um, with Berkshire, he made the investment in the bus company, you know, which I have some books and things here from the time period. So I'm able to see what their balance sheets were and income statements and stuff. So you can see in those that those are probably his best investments. So, you know, nano cap things, not just micro cap, but actually truly, truly small. Even when we multiply some of these things to adjust them to today's inflation, we're still talking about his best investments being in a private company, which today in today's dollars might have had a market cap of less than 10 million at the time he invested in it. Um, certainly at the time he was offered, it was way less than that. So it had a valuation as sort of a venture capital type thing at a valuation of sub $10 million in today's dollars, I think. Certainly... I can come up with a couple other investments he made, which are sub 20 million in today's dollars, you know, adjusted for today. And mm -hmm. a few that are probably one or two that are probably under 10 million adjusted for today. Um, so what's a nano cap today? Like 50 million or something? What would sure. you say? Yeah. Under 50 yeah, so, million. Yeah. So I think all nano caps, I think all of his best investments in terms of percentages have all been nano caps. He's also said his record was best in the fifties. His personal record was better than the partnership record. You know, we know he invested in those kinds of things. So 1950s nano caps, I think were by far his best investments. Mm -hmm. Do you know how long he held the tab company for? Yeah. She ha talks about, it, I think in that speech that she gives, Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if people can find that online, um, but probably if you like search for mid-continent tab car company, I don't know who would have it up there and everything, but it, it, the video is out there and was posted a few times by different people. So it is out there and it is her giving a description of that as a big part of it. That's the best description that I've ever ha heard of that investment. And, um, we know a little bit of it from other things, I guess. So, uh, it, you know, it was a pretty long investment actually. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't remember the exact number of years, but it was a pretty long investment. He turned down some that also would have been pretty good that were also venture things too. So um, either directly himself or in some cases for like, um, we know with endowments and stuff. So for instance, they turned down Intel. And for people that aren't familiar, Jeff is talking about a speech that Alice Schroeder gave. I think when she was probably doing a book tour or talking about the mm -hmm. snowball. And I think Perhaps somebody asked her a question about, you know, his investing framework or what he looks for. And she just gave an example of this company. And it was a business that was private. It was not talked about uh, in other sources. And he she just kind of laid out uh, the framework of how he thought about that investment. Right. The thing that's disappointing about that for us, you know, the kinds of people that listen to this podcast and everything is which is basically saying is this is the kind of stuff I had access to. Yeah, but I wouldn't put in the book because people wouldn't understand it, wouldn't care about it, whatever. But it, but really shaped how I thought about Buffett and how he analyzed things and how I talked about him and stuff. But this is like I had all these examples and I didn't use them because you know my publisher and stuff would say, oh, you can't put that kind of stuff in it. So if she had written a book more like Capital Allocation, right, like the the Jacob McDonald book, um, then that's the book we would have gotten in terms of the access that she had because she had all of his files and he has. 
extensive files going back a lot of years on things, you know, and so that includes stuff like that and, and things that he wrote on and everything. Yeah, it was and like so, chicken scratch, right? So it was basically yeah. like, because I think maybe that's what the question was, how does he value companies? And then she gave the example that he doesn't do DCFs and she walked through how he thought about the valuation for this company. Right. And if I kept files on everything where I had written on it, you'd see the same sort of thing in that there's some detail that provides ideas about what, you know, um, it gives real insight into what you're doing in terms of calculating possible returns in the future and weighing it against other things. It, it's an insight into what's actually going on in your mind. So we talked a little bit about that with that Lehman 10K, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And for people that don't know, you could go to YouTube, type in Focus Compounding Lehman Brothers. During the pandemic, Jeff and I over Zoom spent some time looking at Buffett's 10K on Lehman Brothers. Uh, and at every page that he found something that was a bit suspect. He wrote down the page number on the front of the 10K. And he said, by the time he got down to like the end of the 10K, there was, you know, I don't know, a bunch of different pages written on the front of the 10K uh, of everywhere that he thought something sounded a little bit weird. Yeah, that was a confusing 10K, right? It that was, was uh, it was, yeah. yeah. We didn't get, I mean, I, we spent a good <laughs> amount of time doing it, but it, our conclusion was what? This is very complicated. Yeah, that's brutal listening to an audio version of us going through an investment banking 10K. Yeah. I just I think everyone I, I think people enjoyed it though. I really did. They enjoyed it. Yeah. Yeah. I mentioned I'd read the the um Credit Suisse one a few weeks ago, and that brought memories back of the of the Lehman just because, you know, I don't normally read 10Ks of investment banks. Um, so that's it's a different experience from almost any other kind of 10K. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to add on to this question because we you know we're talking about the the tab card company and how we don't exactly know the entire story there other than what Alice Schroeder talked about. If you were to have dinner with Buffett, you had an hour of his time and you were going to ask him questions. What are some questions you would want to ask him? Hmm. That's a very, very good question. Um, you know, like Munger's version of this that he talked about is like, what happened to Rick Guerin, right? That was one thing he wanted to know. Right. Yeah, so that's a good one. Yeah, I guess I would be interested in some things about his judgment of some people and what some people were like, you know, because you get a feeling from some things um, of some of the other personalities that we don't have a ton of information on. So it, it might be more similar to what you're saying. Um, some of the people that we know a little bit about, and he said something about, but like, you know, what... Um, what eventually happened with that. So the, those actually, it almost all would be like what eventually happened with this company that Berkshire bought or whatever. And then someone else came in that I'd be really curious about. Cause they had some, they had some things in insurance. They had some things in other stuff that just, you know, kind of disappears and you know, something bad happened there, you know, mm -hmm. like for instance, I'd be really curious about how associated cotton shops, uh, it, it was, yeah. I mean, they, they called it diversified retail, but then they sold the other part of it. So that was all that was left. Um, how associated cotton shops, which was what Ben Rosner's uh, uh, was the one who run it, ran it, I think, and um, how it fell apart so fast. So basically, it looks at, like there was a management change and then it collapsed almost instantaneously from what we know from the filings and stuff. So I would be curious about things like that. There's uh -huh. some like that. There's some with the insurance things about how quickly some things went bad in some places. And I'd be curious. I think they were personnel issues and even some um, incentives issues. Um, 
uh, not having good control over fraud and uh, different things being taken advantage of issues in some states. Um, and, you know, he talks a little bit about that, but just it would be really interesting to see the difference in terms of how some of the businesses, the success they had when one person was running them and then how disastrously bad it went when someone else was running them and sort of his judgments of people as individuals. Um that's kind of the one I'm more interested in. I could probably guess as to a lot of his business judgments about things, but about the different CEOs that he had and what he liked and didn't like about them and all that, you know, but I don't think he'd be that candid on all those things. Like, you know, you'd want to, I'd want to ask him the question, did you not, you know, keep all your Disney stock and stuff? Would you have kept it all and stuff if they had, if it had been, you know, uh, if already Eisner was out and yeah. Iger or whoever, just another person was in there and stuff like, would there have been, is it possible you have ended up st- sticking with Disney if it was someone else? Not such a, um, not that, that personality that he had and stuff, but a, a more, um, typical CEO of that. Cause you know, he'd already been in there a while and already done a lot of stuff by then. And, you know, he would have known him. Um, mm-hmm. so, you know, um, and I also never got the feeling that Tom Murphy loved Eisner really because uh, you know Tom Murphy served on the board for a while yeah and I don't know and and um and Iger obviously was from Cap City he's not from Disney but you know that's another one I think the only things I've ever heard were polite enough ways of saying it and stuff but I don't think that Disney was run the way that Tom Murphy would have run it or something you know um so I want so he knew people and stuff and would have known him a little bit and I'd be curious about that you know mm-hmm. uh same thing we I think we talked one time about like movie studio things and he um buffett was asked about something that basically had to do with sort of an investment that some people were going to make some companies were going to make in something that was going to be a ted turner um control Mm -hmm. or ted turner we should maybe controlled maybe he'd own a lot of it but he wouldn't be alone in controlling it you know whatever um thing with the movie studio stuff it would also be interesting there if his issue was it being movie studio stuff or if it was movie studios but it was tom murphy in control or john malone or whatever he'd be okay with it but you know a ted turner or something he felt was a little you didn't want to combine ted turner and, and the movie studio or whatever yeah. you know so there's yeah. something the personalities that i'd be curious about his judgment of some people's personalities and how much that played into things his judgment of how much he liked the guy running solomon and how that turned out mm-hmm. um you know there are there are others like that but yeah judgments of people i think mm-hmm. that was uh i believe it was ted turner's book and he had said that somebody set up a meeting between buffett and ted turner and I think Ted Turner was looking for an investment. And the guy told him, he's like, whatever you do, don't tell Buffett you want to start a movie right. studio. And Ted mm-hmm. Turner is like, look, like he told me not to, but I'm an honest guy. I wanted to be upfront about it. And he did tell him. And basically he said that was kind of, I, I think they, you know, continued their lunch or whatever, but it was basically uh, dead on arrival after that happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? Well, Jamie Dimon mentioned uh, that, right? Where Buffett shot him down and like when it back in the day yeah. with Sandy Weil uh, to be involved in buying a was a consumer credit thing or something. I forget which one it was, but in the early days uh, of that and um, Buffett was like, you know, we don't want to be involved in that within the first five minutes, but they still had a breakfast, you know? Yeah. I think Jamie asked him if he would invest in it or whatever. And Buffett's like, uh, why don't we invest in breakfast? Basically like saying <laughs> no and let's just have a good, yeah. uh, you know, meeting or whatever. Alrighty, next question. What do you guys think about distributors? Uh, so WSO, Watsco, Pool Corp, Ferguson, uh, I don't know what SITE is, Fastenal, Granger, among others. So we did in Singular Diligence write up a few, uh, what we call MROs, 
um, which would be your Grangers and your Fastenals, and um, MSC Industrial Direct uh, would probably be the ones that people would think of most. They're also distributors of things that go into um, home stuff, which is a little trickier, home building type things and home improvement and all that, which is going to be more cyclical versus the more machine shop type things. MSC is more a little bit more tilted towards machine shop stuff. And then um, Granger and stuff is kind of more generally diversified. Um, I like them fine as businesses. They're ve- they're they're somewhat cyclical, and their stocks are extremely cyclical. So we just had a question before about these large stocks. These are stocks that even when they're not large are very well known by investors, and I think by hedge funds and long short strategies and things like that. And I think they get pair traded um, to some extent. I think they really get traded on like they want to be short some part of the economy along another part, things like that. So I think these are pretty actively traded in the same categories. When we talk about things like Cinemark and Six Flags, I think even Mm -hmm. way beyond what's justified by their earnings. And so I think you do tend to see collapses in the stock price of like MSC or whatever um, really in advance of proof coming in in terms of earnings of what's happening and you see recoveries that same way because they want to play that uh, because it's tied really it's tied somewhat to industrial production stuff because there's a leverage to it in terms of operational leverage um, that it does better with higher volumes and then it's possible to predict kind of watching the um, high frequency economic data you know that you see your um, stuff about business confidence things and predictions of production levels and whatever in the future and using that to trade the stock. So I think they get traded a lot more and not owned as much as you might think. Um, in terms of the actual companies there, most of them are pretty mature and are, have pretty good economics. And so it depends a lot on their capital allocation. Yeah. So do you like the industry? Do you like distributors? Would you ever invest in one if the price was right? You did write up about Granger. I believe you wrote about Granger and the single diligence reports, correct? Yeah. And I wrote up uh, one of them. Was it uh, Granger when it was pretty cheap again? We could look at the stock chart and yep. see. I, I rewrote it up just like an update to people that, you know, oh, it, it looks interesting again at a certain price. And we'll see how far it is from those prices. Um, yeah. Okay. So it's really, really far from those prices. <laughs> yeah. Granger is that for people <laughs> listening, 581 bucks a share. Let's look at it on quick FS to see on a valuation basis. Um, yeah. uh, let's see PE currently 20 times EV free cash flow, 34 times, but EVD sales 2.1 10 year median margins on EBIT about 11%. So, uh, so can you look on focus compounding site? You yeah. Just search it for the ticker. Cause I probably put the ticker in the, when I published it. So just, yep. Lower prices, uh, higher volumes. Okay, does it say when it was and anything else that would give us a hint? The stock? Okay, so we have the stock price I mentioned in the first $188 a share. Yeah. Yeah. So um, so it traded at $230 when I talked about it in 2016 then. And then I re- wrote it up later. Mm-hmm. So, but I haven't written it up in a long time since then. So where I was writing about it, you know, is obviously less than, it was more than 50% below where it is today. But- I thought it was interesting and wrote about it then. Um, the capital allocation and the stock price at the time was attractive that way. You're now paying a pretty high price, you know. Um, mm-hmm. We can look at the quick FS for it, but um, the other thing is, you know, as a stock, this sort of thing, since it's pretty cyclical, isn't a bad idea to buy, you know, more like in a recession or something than um, 
or when people are worried about it, you know? So for instance, when I was writing back then, I don't know how well people remember this, but say 26, 2017, you know, when I rewrote it up and everything, that was actually some concerns about things. There was concerns of things with China. We taper tantrum. Uh, there, there was some stuff going on globally. There wasn't, uh, people weren't convinced that there was a lot of economic growth. It wasn't quite a recession, but it was something people, it was a part of the economy people were, were more worried about than like tech and stuff at the time. So it's the kind of thing they would pick on to short, whereas now maybe they wouldn't as much because, you know, obviously there are other parts that are doing a lot worse. Um, so you can see what I meant about it being stable uh, and slower growth. Mm-hmm. You know, the the revenue growth has only been 5% over time, although EPS has been higher. They focus on sort of a total return kind of thing. Um, you know, I think you're paying a, for this particular one pretty, you know, you're paying, I don't know, almost 20 times pre-tax earnings or something. It's pretty high because your EBIT isn't really going to be much better than 11% a year, as you see here at the 10-year median margin, and you're paying two times sales for it. Um, so... I, you know, um, I think I have mentioned before, it, you know, it does own stock in a another company that's publicly traded in Japan. So keep that in mind. And there, I wouldn't do it, but there may be ways for people to short one out and buy the other, um, you know, like buy Granger, short that stock, things like that. Um, so uh, that's something to keep in mind, too, because the valuation is very different on the two. Mm-hmm. Got it. Um in a few of his articles, Cashtag Jeff mentioned that he likes to use return on retained earnings. Can he break it down in depth on a specific company? Some example where it is not so obvious just by looking at the financials. Uh, we can try looking at something. I would say no. It's I mean, I look at return on retained earnings and what I've said before is like the market value test, basically, mm-hmm. that Buffett's talked about, which is that if you're going to retain a dollar of earnings, you need to create a dollar of market value. And I don't look at the actual market value. I look at something like the um, the uh, what it would be if it was trading at, say, 15 times earnings or whatever. But, you know, um, let's see. Uh, well... As an example of one where the return on retained earnings hasn't been very good would be something like NACO, right? But that gets complicated because you said, okay, well, you know, where it's, you know, so, so NACO is a good complicated example. On the one hand, so it's retained a bunch of earnings if we look down at, um, when was it spun off? Do you have the spinoff? Can you see it on the balance sheet or did they restate the balance sheet? Uh, you can see it on the income statement. Probably 2017 using, right so. here. 2017. Okay. Area. So let's start by looking down at the bottom of 2017, what retained earnings were. Retained earnings were 216 million. Okay. And we're up to what now? 350? Uh, yeah. Okay. So you have had an increase in, of like, let's say roughly 100, uh, you know, 130 million or something like that. Um, and then if you look at earnings, your earnings are not much different. I mean, they're going to be lower this year than last year. They were up last year versus the early period that we saw. But if we look at like, um, uh, you know, operating income doesn't matter for this company because of the way that it's being used on QuickFS is confusing. They have unconsolidated subsidiaries. So those are showing all negatives for operating profit, but it's actually all positives. Um, so if we look at comparing net income over that time period, what's the change that we see? Uh, 30 million in 2017. And then we're at a TTM of 68 million. Yeah, but you were at like 15 in 2020. So you have to, you know, you have to average it over a few years. Um, So it's hard to tell. Most of it has actually gone to paying down 
cat uh, to paying out down debt, mm-hmm. you know, and to buying up some other things. They bought up some mineral rights, but that's mainly it. So it's not actually a much more additional investment in the business. But that's a good example of where people would say, well, there's a lot of retained earnings, but it's not really adding to things. It's just paying off debt, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the ones where it's more alarming are the, this is the obvious ones, right? So we talked about this, Alibaba, Amazon. It seems that the return on retained earnings has, you know, um, fallen catastrophically recently. Uh, so, I mean, Amazon's a good example. So we can type in Amazon so you can see this. Unless earnings rise a lot in the near future, their return on retained earnings seems quite bad. Um, so we can look at like balance sheet to see what I mean. So uh, let's try, let's see. Um, yeah, so the return on retained earnings in the last, what, three years or so, it was, it went, f- it, it's, what level is it now? So it went from 20 billion in 2018 to about 86 billion in 2021. But it went 20 okay. billion, 31 billion, 52 billion, and then uh, 86 billion. Right. However, a lot of this is an increase in investments, right? So, like, if you look, you can see that there's an increase in things like short term investments are up uh, by a lot added to cash. You could say, okay, so it's an increase in cash investments and other things. However, they've increased their liabilities a bunch, and you can see that the real increase overall is in, pro- is in tangible property plan and equipment. That's increased by like 200 billion. Um, you know, so that it's a question of where it goes and all of that and how much it would have to increase. So to give you an idea, if you were increasing it by, you know, 200 billion in terms of property, plan and equipment, um, or in this case, let's see, there's, so they increased it by 160 billion, let's say, and it will just use the last three years, even though, though that's like two years and nine months or something probably. But, um, so that level of increase if you needed, let's say, a 10% on leverage return, and they would need more than that because they don't use leverage, uh, financial leverage. They actually have some cash, as we saw. So um, you would want to, to get a return that would like beat the market and stuff. You would need to have an increase in your um, income from that. That would be more than, than $12 billion. Uh, actually, in this case, it would be more than $16 billion, um, we would need. So we could go to the income statement and see what kind of increases they've had. Um, I mean, it depends on exactly what you're using here. By some measures, there's little change. There was a change, though, during COVID. If that change during COVID had been sustained, although that's clearly not due to the increase in PP&E, the, that increase funded the increase in PP&E. You know, that increase in earnings funded the increase in PP&E. But at the moment, we're at the same level of profitability that we were three years ago. And we're using many, many more times the tangible assets to do it. So we'll see what changes, but look, they're firing a lot of people and stuff that this is why. Mm-hmm. So, so uh, in a sense, so like, is that obvious? Like the question was find right cases where it's not obvious. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This is kind of an obvious one, I guess, you know? So I, I, you know, the NACA one is more, is it or isn't it that they're getting value for what they're doing? Uh, Amazon, they're not getting value for what they're doing. So. And then he asks a question. He says, what does Jeff like capital allocation wise when the company is illiquid and the share price is depressed, assuming management doesn't have a long acquisition track record? Um, you could pay out dividends. You could, um, I mean, in terms of buying back the stock when it's illiquid, I'm always yeah. in favor of, of a uh, tender to buy back stock anyway. 
uh, there are, you know, that's not how they do it in the modern world. So I think it's just less effective to buy back stock over time, constantly buying it. I don't think that's great. Uh, that's how companies do it, though. I would always rather that if you're going to buy back a ton of it, that you recapitalize by buying back a lot or pay a dividend. Special dividends, large buybacks, you know, that's what I always prefer rather than small regular dividends and small buybacks um, that you regularly do. Uh, I think, I don't know if buybacks are usually out of the question for liquidity reasons. If you offer a tender, you might be surprised how many people who hold an illiquid stock would be happy to get rid of it, especially because it's illiquid. You might actually, it, sometimes it works out better to take out blocks that way. I've certainly found that buying illiquid stocks, you can sometimes get pretty good prices because someone's happy to sell their whole block. Mm-hmm. Um, but you certainly can't do an open market buyback. Yeah. So I would say probably special dividends. Yeah. A reasonable level of debt and special dividends, you know, depending on the company. I think are having the right amount of debt all the time spaced out correctly and then paying the rest out in dividends or something would make sense. But if they're good acquisitions or things like that, then that would be fine. Basically, if you can find ways that you're going to get a double digit return um, after taxes using all equity, then, you know, I would like, I would like that. If you can't do that, then you would think about paying it out. Mm -hmm. Somebody says, I know Jeff prefers low to no debt companies, but what book slash investor is best for learning to evaluate equity stubs slash higher leverage companies? Question mark. Is it worth it? Cash tag L Y L T spun off from ADS with a ton of debt and his price for bankruptcy, but I'm intrigued by their air miles loyalty biz. Right. So first let's clear up a misconception. (laughs) I don't think that I do prefer low to no debt companies compared to other people necessarily. I'll say a few things. One, like Ben Graham, I would say the same company with less debt is always more valuable. I like that if it has low or no debt or it has excess cash or something, it could add leverage in the future. It does not mean that if I ran the company, I would suggest a policy of having no debt. Um, but I, you know, I've seen people say like, you know, give them points for their capital allocation and ding another company for saying they don't use any debt. And this company does use debt and it's smart about it. Well, but that's baked into the price because we're looking at the enterprise value. You're basically saying also this company that is doing smart things, we're counting on to continue to do smart things. This company that isn't yet doing smart things, we're assuming it will never do smart things, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. Um, so I suppose the one I would like best is a no or low debt company that says we're going to add debt and buy back stock and do things that are, you know, smart. Um, probably the best one would be, uh, you can be a stock market genius. Mm -hmm. However, uh, I think Peter Lynch is better than you might think about some turnarounds and stuff like that. Uh, he has a little like section on that too. And he talks about his turnarounds, but really a lot of it is this leverage part of it. Got it. Next question. How does Jeff go about speaking to ex-employees, competitors, etc.? What are his favorite questions to ask when doing Scuttlebutt? Well, I I would generally be using other people, right? Uh, I'm definitely not going to be like, hi, I have a podcast. I I run a fund. Um, Tell me all your secrets, you know? Um, You want to be in a less... um, a more relaxed way than that to do it, right? If you read the early things of Buffett, right? The early Buffett partnership things and stuff, that's what I'm talking about, where he talks about 
getting other people in to do specific projects and those people don't know anything about other projects that they're also doing. That would always be my preferred thing is that someone is focused on analyzing this company and they have no idea that I'm also analyzing some other company. But I would rather look overall at the things that I'm interested in, picking what things to research as much as I can. And then here's a set of questions that I have about this company. Generally, the questions are not the same from company to company because the the case for investment is is totally different depending on how much, uh, how expensive it is and all that. Like people ask these questions, well, do, are you worried about, you know, the durability of Virtu motors versus the durability of Progresso or something? Totally different questions because Virtu has a bunch of capital and was really cheap, right? So like mm -hmm. the duration issue is not a big issue. Progressive, not very cheap, and the capital is produced by the fact that it's in that business. So if you have like self-driving cars to the point where they're perfect and they never get in accidents and uh, you have electric cars, you know, assuming those two things happen, both, uh, much bigger issue at one company than the other. I would spend no time, and that surprises people, in analyzing Virtu, worrying about the change to electric and everything, even though that country has a plan to go uh, completely electric and that presumably would change maintenance things and stuff just very far out and very speculative. We don't know that it will happen. What will it be when it will happen? Uh, we don't know exactly how that will affect it and in what ways and everything. And, you know, um, the big things that I always talk about are separating out the, well, a couple things. One, the confidence thing of like, what do I need to know to invest in this? And it's totally different depending on price. So when you're analyzing net net and stuff, I just need to know that the Business isn't going to lose money. The people are honest running it, and this the you know receivables and the cash and the whatever other things I'm looking at are solid, marketable sorts of things. If I know that, it's really a question of like, would I lend money to this company? If that answer is yes, then I'll take all the upside too. So it's very easy to analyze a net net as opposed to something trading at thirty times earnings. Different questions. Um, then the other thing is really the big questions are things that are self reinforcing versus self defeating things. So self-correcting things, you know. So a lot of time is spent by investors worrying about self, what I would say call self-correcting things, right? Oh, you know, aren't you really worried that prices will be down in this thing a lot next year? Well, they'll be really down and then that will set and force prices that, you know, things that will mm -hmm. change things so that they have a good year the next year. Um, you know, that's how cycles work and all that. The problem is more um, things like, let's say I was interested in Adidas, right? Okay. So that would be a case where I would be genuinely concerned about what seems like a small headline thing, which is the relationship with a certain celebrity, um, because of how much is that driving sales at the company and what was the situation the company was in before it started to get a meaningful amount of sales from that and how diversified is it in that and um, how much does it really depend on that. Um, that may be much more the case with uh, some companies and you could overlook it. You could look at Adidas and say, okay, well I can analyze Adidas. I can analyze Hanes. It's basically the same thing. It's not, it, it's based on very premium pricing and very fashion driven mm -hmm. things and very, that, that are based on, um, that could be, it's an easy area to misunderstand sure. right, how big that is or not. But it also could offer an opportunity if it turns out that there's, um, that there's a lot of headline risk from that, but, um, it's not a big deal, you know? Um, so it, it really depends on the company, but it's the same thing as like, um, 
you know, for instance, we talked about movie things before. They're not pu- there's not many public movie studios like split off from other things and stuff that really aren't out there. But DreamWorks was one. DreamWorks Animation. Um, I'd spend no time worrying about a particular movie that they're coming out with. Um, I'd spend more time worrying about longer term what the issues are with you know their process of how they make things and their process for how they manage the costs, you know, um, so that how much they could lose from a particular movie and all of that. But so like I'd worry, are they going to release too many movies that are going to um, crowd each other out that way? You know, uh, that cannibalize each other. Are they spending too much so that they could get their budgets out of control, you know, or are mm-hmm. they in control so that when the, they have a success, this makes sense. And when they have a failure, the losses are reasonable given the size of the company. Um, but I wouldn't really care about what, what do you feel? Oh, do you think there's really good things about this? Com- uh, you know, how are you feeling? If I could talk to everyone inside the company, how are you feeling about how this movie's coming along? How it's going to turn out? Um, is it going to be a big hit? Because it's pretty random um, in the sense that they'll have ones that connect with the public and ones that don't connect with the public. And that's not really a big concern for me. Um, what the, it's usually it's something that would be like repeated over and over again. That would be more the concern. So something like a budgeting problem, uh, you know, and what they're green lighting and how they're budgeting everything that would become a really big issue. So you take an example like HBO and HBO Max and everything before Discovery took them over. That was more worrying what was happening there because uh, there wasn't good control of budgets, I think, and there also was putting everything on HBO Max, which is destroying a lot of the value and stuff. And so that's more worrying as like a institution-wide issue that could be repeated in future years and could show up in a lot of different results. It's not something that's compartmented. Um, So I'm more worried about that, organizational things and stuff. Maybe it's a little bit more like Phil Fisher type stuff. If you read his books, he's a lot focused on the organization and everything. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I'd say that's a big part of it. The biggest thing always is trying to figure out the customer behavior. Yeah. So why they're doing what they're doing. So the Adidas example is a really good example. why were they buying the way that they were and what will it be like in the future? Um, and that I care about more than say, what is the exact dollar hit in which quarter, you know? Mm-hmm. Well said. Um, next question is if each of you had to own one stock in the S and P 500 for the next 20 years, which one and why? I think Jeff said Disney a few years ago, wondering if he still likes it and Berkshire doesn't count. So if you had to purchase one stock in the S&P 500 to hold over the next 20 years, Jeff, what stock mm-hmm. would that be? That's very tough. I mean, think about how much technology, yeah. like I know like Meta um, and all those you know tech companies are in Netflix uh, in the S&P 500 and think about like 20 years ago, what, you know, was considered big tech and stuff like that. You know, maybe do you take the easy answer and say Apple? Apple's been around for a while. I'd probably pick a bank like JP Morgan or Bank of America. Eh, maybe not Bank of America, probably JP Morgan or Apple if I was just throwing darts. Hmm. Yeah, that's a very hard question. I'm not sure that I know everybody that's in the S&P 500, first of all. Um, <laughs> Let me pull up. Let me pull it up. And you'd be concerned about management. Um, you know, that's going to change a lot during that time period. It would not be a financial for me. Too much can change no. in terms of finance. It wouldn't even be Berkshire. It's just too much can change. They, it, they could quickly uh, start to behave in a different way, you know? What about Tesla? Uh, Tesla's a skip for me. Um, <laughs> Apple, Microsoft, what... Amazon, Alphabet, Berkshire, Tesla, Exxon. Uh, yes. maybe, maybe Exxon, right? There you go. J&J, uh, NVIDIA. 
Uh, yeah, you can keep moving down. Uh, so I don't really understand drug things. Procter & Gamble, some of those are not cheap and don't have a great, you know, future with the, you know, that I could evaluate. So it might be a little difficult in terms of their actual returns being bad. Um, Home what about Depot's McDonald's? Retailer, but, um, let's see. Uh, Honeywell. Raytheon. AT&T, Nike, Lowe's, United Parcel Service, uh, Union Pacific Corp. There you go. Buffett talked about, uh, yeah. you know, railroads will, will still be around 100 years from now and just yeah. as important. It, it, it might be something like Union Pacific. I mean, I think they're pretty expensive usually mm -hmm. um, lately, but let's see what else. Uh, S&P Intuit, I mean, maybe global. people change. Intuit, though, it's probably always too expensive. Mm -hmm. And um, Deer. John Deere. Yeah, it's really a finance company, though. I mean, mm -hmm. theoretically, it sells tractors and stuff. Caterpillar and Deere are the same way. They're you know, really financial-based, um, which is fine. But, like, you could get a CEO who, you know, Blows turns up. it. it yeah, you <laughs> don't know what they're doing until it's yeah, um, too late. It's like until that, you know, that, like, weird shit coin blows up, you don't know what they're doing. Yeah. Um... Yeah, I mean, there are some companies in here. The price on a lot of them probably isn't great, you know? So you have some things that are... Um, well, you know, they have a, so they have a few in here that are um, core processing things. Mm -hmm. They have some things in here that are credit-related things in some ways. That is providing business information services. I like business information services as a thing. Uh, as opposed to the actual financial services, probably. So I would rather Intuit than Bank of America if I had to go away for 20 years. Um, I would rather, you know, Fiserv than, um, uh, you know, Visa or something. Mm -hmm. um, all the, which doesn't mean that there's that Visa isn't a great business. Um, Tough question. Sherwin-Williams will be around in 20 years and will be making a lot of money unless they, you know, get sued over something that was in their... I mean, they've been sued before with things in their pain stuff. I can't imagine yeah. any environmental thing that would be that bad. J&J's had bad things. 3M's had bad things at times. You know, there are some... Uh, well, if you make an actual product that people use, you always do run the risk of health things and stuff like that. But, uh, yeah, but, I mean, do we have, like... Like, for instance, on QuickFS, what is Sherwin Williams trading at? I bet it's a crazy multiple compared to the market. Let's see. Let's see. Sherwin Williams. Uh, it's trading yeah. at 32 times earnings. Yeah. So you have me Sherwin Williams at 13 times earnings. Yeah. I, I would do it. Yeah. Is it Sherwin ever? Williams. Yeah. I mean, you know, one could hope, right? What is it ever even traded that low price earnings basis? I mean, just over the past 10 years, maybe. Yeah, I mean, now <laughs> it looks like the lowest multiple, according to QuickFS, is 22 times earnings. Yeah, I mean, I have, uh, you know, old S&P, not, not S&P, Moody's manuals. I actually have some S&P stuff from a long time ago. There are some companies, Sherwin-Williams is one of them, that it's amazing. Half a century later, you can look at the data and it looks a lot like it did. Um, there's some differences in financial engineering somewhat in the way it's run and everything, but... 
very predictable in terms of product mm-hmm. economics and sort of the underlying business looking a lot the same. We have a lot of examples of this kind of business all around the world and how it works. Uh, you know, it would it would be pretty high. I also want to caution on the Disney thing. I was just saying, like, Disney's the kind of thing if you had to have a company and you had to own forever and it had to be one, that would be, you'd be most sure of the durability. Mm-hmm. So it's just a question of protecting yourself by sort of having an, it's like an index approach. Although I think it's a more durable index approach than like a Berkshire Hathaway. I actually think that a a Berkshire Hathaway, a General Electric, whatever, um, you know, in its heyday, although people would argue it's a conglomerate and it's more protected and stuff, I think something like Disney is actually more durable and more protected for the long term because of what it's in and what it's not in. That is not a case for it being a great investment. I don't think Disney actually, I mean, remarkably, I don't think Disney at this point has been a great investment over the last 25 years or something. I think it's been probably pretty similar to the market, I would have to guess. Let's look. Um, Compared to the SPX over the last, uh, what we could do, I mean, from 2000. What's that? That's early 90s? Yeah. Mm -hmm. It goes all the way back to 1992. Yeah. All right. And what's the difference there? Well, if you're going back to 1992. It's now under under that. It's okay. So if you've been from the early 90s, the middle of the uh, big renaissance in terms of the the movies that they're putting out and everything and a lot of good things happening for the company then to now your the S&P's outperformed it by a little bit right but a few months ago that wouldn't be true yeah so for people listening Disney the return would have been 647% first the S&P of 867% yeah. since like whatever I said 1992 yeah yeah and the alarming thing about that is it's not super cheap right now so mm-hmm. it's a company that, you know, unfortunately, all the ones I could give you, I gave Sherman Williams is super expensive and stuff. So you pay too high a price for something. It's not going to work out as a stock, unfortunately. So the idea of buying one stock and holding it forever is hard because you, a lot of times everyone else recognizes that, right? I mean, Disney may not sound that ex- uh, expensive right now to people, right? You're like, oh, you know, Sherman Williams might not sound that expensive. There's other things that trade at those. But every other entertainment thing is basically a lot cheaper than Disney. Mm-hmm. A lot cheaper. You can go through the Paramounts and the Warners and the, you know, especially on like an, uh, um, especially on a market cap basis, but because, you know, Disney's not as leveraged as those companies, but it it's st- selling at a really premium price. So it is recognized as the most sort of durable thing long-term and all that. Um, likewise, you know, Sherwin-Williams uh, is, you know, other things that are... Things that go into homes and all that stuff are not going to be priced uh, at you know anywhere near those kinds of things. You know, it's priced like uh, like those other ones we were talking about, like the visas and the you know all that kind of thing. Uh, it's priced like Coke was priced in two thousand or whatever. You know, mm-hmm. um, so it's reflected in the price, unfortunately, in most of these cases of things I could think of. Next question: If your goal is to start a fund slash become a full time investor. What would he recommend a young investor uh, should do to reach this goal? For example, work at a fund, start a blog to write about his ideas, dot, dot, dot. Uh, So what advice would you give to somebody that wants to uh, become a full-time investor? Blog and communicate all you can with the people who talk to you from your blog. I mean, maybe blogs aren't the thing to do now. Maybe it's Twitter, you know. But it has to be Twitter than linking to something that's actually longer form and everything and specific. But basically, you want to have stuff that's of use to other people and share it for free. And then you'll get in contact with those people. And then you just want to be 
uh, useful to them. And, you know, we'll see, but jobs could come from that and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, next question. Is Jeff going to write more frequently on focuscompound.com? <laughs> what kind of write-ups uh, should we expect? So for everyone that doesn't yeah. know, all the write-ups on Focus Compounding are now free. There's no paywall. Yeah. Everything is free. So what are your plans with the website, if any at all? We'll see. Um, obviously going free is a part of recognition of the fact that I haven't been writing things up enough. Um, and, uh, I haven't been writing things up enough is a reflection of not having things to write up, um, that I felt were useful to people, right? That they are worthwhile as a article and everything. And to some extent, the overlap between the fund and the manager accounts with the things I would write up. Mm-hmm. and some alarm at like the fact of people watching what we do and sharing it with other people and the information getting out there and stuff too. So, you know, um, that's certainly an issue. We don't have some giant audience or whatever, but it, it is a meaningful... Um, if I shine a light on some company that's of good quality or whatever that other people hadn't found before it does really get out there from that point on, you know? And so that, that has definitely worried me. So why does that matter? There's people listening that say, well, that's a good thing, right? That's other good. people get yeah. involved. The stock price goes up. Why do you take the other side of that? Yeah. So one, I've had quite a few people, I mean, over the years, people have come to me sharing something and been, you know, admitted. That's why I'm sharing with you. I own it and I want to get the word out on this and get the, the multiple up. And I thought you'd like it and talk about it. Um, so that's what some people do. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you're going to be a net buyer of it over time, then that worries me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then I also can't write negatively about anything. That's the other thing that would worry me. Right. I think I mentioned this before. Like I wrote something about an accounting thing at one company and it's shared. So, you know, um, so that's, a, that's an issue. Now I'd known about that before that I mentioned accounting things someplace or whatever, and other people pick up on it and stuff. So it has happened before. So there's certain kinds of things that get shared and stuff in a way that other things don't. If I just say, oh, this stock looks cheap or something, it's not really going to matter. You know, we that's not going to affect anything. Mm-hmm. However, if we say here's an undervalued, you know, here's a stock no one talks about and stuff, and it's actually a really good business, and here's why X, Y, Z about it, it does affect it. And definitely if I talk about um, accounting things that I see, especially let's talk about negative things, accounting things that I see. I want to pass on this because of this accounting issue, this issue that I don't like about management, this, whatever that will get picked up and looked into. And then people will kind of realize that, um, there are fewer people reading a 10 K and marking it up and everything and reading all the other things together with it than you might think. So although theoretically, a lot of people are looking at a stock, if I'm reading each of the filings, which I do and comparing things between them, and thinking about what does this mean here in this footnote or whatever, then yeah, I mean, it's surprising because it's public information that everyone should have, but um, it's only when you do that and talk about it that people kind of zero in on that particular thing. So mm-hmm. um, so that's part of it. So, so then, of course, okay. So you have this issue, right? Um, we already had this before where I moved away from doing ones where I wrote things up because people would say, you pick this stock, right? 
And so we moved to my interest level, right? Initial interest. Mm -hmm. Switched to this idea of basically writing up things that I would write them up and say how interested I would be in like following up on them and stuff. And the real reason for doing that is because people would say that I picked a stock and act as if I picked a stock saying positive things about it uh, when I didn't. I just wanted to write it up and talk about it. Mm -hmm. um, so I pass on the vast majority of things I analyze. And um, as, yeah, that was becoming a big part of it too. So we'll see. But uh, the other thing is the market. You know, if the market was a lot cheaper, it'd be a lot easier, right? Mm -hmm. um, you had also said, I mean, you kind of hit on it earlier, but like basically uh, it's, it's challenging when you want to, potentially write about something that we could buy one day. Like, we don't want to do that. You don't want to do that. Yes. And, uh, I mean, you're not spending, and, I mean, you're reading about large cap companies and stuff, but anything that you right. may actually want to buy, you you don't want to write about it. Yeah. So that's become a big part of the issue. I would say if I, if we were running a fund that was for big stocks, I wouldn't care as much. I think, you know, that on the podcast, people have noticed that I'm more willing to, say negative things about some big companies, big management, whatever. Um, that's very, you know, they're more in the public eye. There's press that covers them and they should, you know, I'm not the only one saying whatever. So I'm more comfortable with saying, I don't like how GE did this thing in their filing or whatever than I am about some microcap that the only thing anyone will ever have found out about is that I said, you know, they've never heard of this thing. And the first thing they're hearing is, you know, well, the, the, you know, here's this accounting treatment I don't like or whatever. Um, yeah. And you, there's a huge difference between what does well as an article and what does well as a stock. Sure. Gigantic. I mean, mm -hmm. I've written different things and so it's amazing. Uh, you know, what does well as an article is something controversial, likely to lose you all your money. Um, things like that. Uh, you know, um, I think when I wrote the blog, you know, overstock.com would probably been like the, Oh, that's the one everyone wanted to read about because mm -hmm. the personality you had involved there because of, uh, controversy and shorting things and all sorts of things about that that would be the thing that would get the most people clicking on or whatever uh, an article about sherwin williams would not you know uh probably um e even though that stock probably sherwin williams probably did pretty well over the last you know 15 years or whatever um how many times yeah. have we talked about like if all we did was talk about bitcoin and tesla you know over the past five years the podcast would probably be 10 times bigger yeah so i I don't know. I've, I've thought about different things and I'm thinking about it. I could just write up a lot of, I mean, I could write up every time I did it. There was a period where I basically was writing up if I really got to the end of a 10K and it was okay. I didn't find something really negative about the company. The price wasn't insane. It was a real company, whatever. I would write it up and put it up there even if I wasn't that interested. I did like, um, this was a period during which I did, what was it? Um, was it Silvercrest Asset Management? SAMG mm -hmm. is the ticker, yeah. Mm -hmm. And stocks like that. I wasn't necessarily all that interested in them, but I just went through them and, and did them. Um, I think a lot of people you know, like that, though, Jeff. Like, I think they just okay. like getting your input from, like, a learning perspective. Even if it's not something you would buy, I think people like to see sort of where your brain goes, how you interpret such things, and, and then, you know, ultimately write about it. I think people just like the process of it all. Yeah, we'll see. I became worried with some things. Like I've seen some, I saw some lists of like holdings that some people had and stuff. And it's like, oh, well, half of those yeah. are things that I uh, yeah. brought to the attention to and stuff. So I don't know how I feel about that. I mean, that's a level of like, 
you know, Buffett was very, in his best years, was super, super secretive about his ideas. Other people on Wall Street aren't. He's one of the greatest investors of all times, you know. Mm-hmm. So I'd, maybe it's a coincidence that those things are true. But yeah, I'd, you know, and even I don't like in general talking about um, uh, things, you know, to draw people's attention to it and whatever. It just in general, I don't like it um, for all sorts of reasons. I mean, for one thing, like companies pay attention to this and know that we talked about them and whatever. And, mm-hmm. you know, I don't, yeah. Um, and then the way that it gets talked about, picked up and other things can be different, you know? Um, so I don't know. On the, and so then taking off the pay thing also means that it's to a very wide audience. And that was always an issue in singular diligence. People ask like, how do you decide on the price and stuff? Honestly, deciding on things like the price to be, how do we cap the audience small enough? Wouldn't have a problem. You know, like, I was not, this is how we'll make the most revenue. Mm-hmm. It was, this ha- can't be something that has thousands and thousands of subscribers. And so if someone told me, well, if you price it at, you know, $4.99 a month, you can have, you know, tens of thousands of subscribers. Well, then it's not worth anything really, unless you're talking about the very biggest companies in the, in the world. And, and, um, I learned that from doing some different newsletters stuff, you know, that it really only has value if it's very small. So I can certainly write about some things that are bigger and whatever, and be more noncommittal about them, I guess. Um, the other big part is I spent doing that is to some extent I spent more time looking at things that I otherwise wouldn't look at. Even if we're talking about things that sound fairly small to the average investor, we don't really invest in kind of highly liquid $1 billion companies or something. And, you know, a lot of things that I write about kind of edge towards that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, sometimes people talk about just because you've written so much yeah. over the years, they'll talk about different stocks that you've written about. And mm-hmm. I'll just be like, yeah, he wrote about it, but he didn't invest in it himself. Right. He just wrote about mm-hmm. it because it was good to write about it. Or it'd be maybe somebody brought an idea to him and he made a blog post out of it. Even if you will be like, oh, you know, I could see how this could do okay over time. That doesn't mean that you actually right. purchase it yourself. I mean, what percentage of the stocks did you actually buy that you wrote about? Right. I so, mean, very, very, very low. Exactly. It's a very, very small number. Um, so it is something that I'm thinking about all the time and what to do about it. I like writing up specific stocks um, when possible. And I think that reading a bunch of individual analysis of stocks that I've written up is actually a better way to kind of learn investing and stuff than reading a bunch of like theory type things, you know? Um, But I'm not sure. I have to think a lot about it. I have mixed feelings on it. Uh, We also did things where we, you know, try to bring in other people to write up stuff. That didn't work out as well. It's not their fault. They did a great job. Um, <laughs> do so, you do you miss writing? I'm trying to find an old blog post that you talked about how you want to structure the rest of your life, and it was basically whoops, right? It was basically writing up uh, stocks and investing in you know one new security a year or something like that, and repeating until you die, and writing up yes. the stocks as well. So I'm kind of curious. I right. mean, do you miss the act of actually writing? Yes. Yeah. But that's because we started managed accounts and f- the fund, and I would do that if it was just my me investing my own money, and I didn't have to tell people what I was invested in and stuff. Yeah, it would be totally different. Um, I don't even love that all the people who are invested in the things know exactly what they're invested in, how quickly they they know that and stuff. You know, I don't I don't like um, for the managed accounts. If you're doing something in a more overlooked area, 
you know, I know that people think that the opposite is true and assume, oh, we'd love to talk our book and whatever. No, rather that people have no idea what we're investing in, what we're doing. And I don't want to create any competition for buying things. And and I want to be very open to the possibility of being able to reverse decisions mm-hmm. that I've made and stuff and people not say, oh, but you wrote such wonderful things about it before. Yeah. Um, but, you know, you analyze it all the time. You know, Buffett eventually, for some reason, sold Wells Fargo and had written about it and, and talked about it and stuff for years and years. He saw something different with it, did something different. You want to always be in that position to do that. Um, so we'll see. I thought of lots of different ideas about what I could do. But yes, managing money is the part uh, that is has caused the issue with uh, writing stuff up. And it's an issue. It's my issue with it. It's not that it's a legal issue or something with doing it. Um, you know, it's because certainly do it. Lots of, I mean, lots of people do detailed things about the things that they own. I mm-hmm. mean, that's one thing that you'll notice we do not do. Um, or maybe you don't notice because if you're not invested in things, you wouldn't notice this. But a lot of people, their main thing is they put out monthly or quarterly letters, which talk basically about their holdings. Mm-hmm. Right. And like why we like these stocks and stuff. You know, you'll notice that since we we actually launched the fund, you're not finding any of that online. If You know, because and it's not because people can't get their hands on it. It's because it doesn't exist. We we just haven't sent to partners um, things about this is why we like these stocks, kind of like positive write ups about them. There's some information about like this is what's been going on with this company. But that's a marketing thing, to be honest. I mean, those those funds want their letters to investors to get out. We don't want them to get out. Mm-hmm. Um, so, do you want to share what we do for the fund? For the fund, uh, well, we do a uh, annual um, like Q and A type podcast, yeah. type thing. You know, private podcast for the. So it's it's more like having a virtual annual meeting in that sense. It's, um, but we do it like taking the questions for them instead of actually having it like. Um, where people would know each other from it, you know, so it's more anonymous that way. But otherwise, it's exactly like if you did a, um, it's basically the same as if you did an annual report, you know, because obviously there's an audit annual report for them. So it's like as if you did an annual report and then an annual meeting, mm-hmm. except it's an anonymous annual meeting. So it's more like this podcast, but same concept. Yeah. yeah. So we take questions from investors and uh, we'll go over it. And how long was our last one? Wasn't it like almost three hours, I believe, was the last one that mm-hmm. we did for 2021? Yeah. So we'll see. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about stuff and doing different write-ups of it, but, um, it is diff. I think it is difficult. Um, it's definitely a negative. I always said that, you know, Mm. um, it's easier to invest and not, uh, write about investing and stuff than the other way around. Mm -hmm. In many ways, it'd be better to do all the writing as if there was an audience and then not to put it out there. That would probably be the best in terms of for you psychologically and everything. Um, I do think the write-ups help formulate ideas and, and crystallize my thinking on things and stuff. But I am definitely worried about people acting on it, not just in things that harm us or whatever, you know, like by creating competition for it and everything, but also misinterpreting, mm-hmm. you know? I don't like if um, people are investing in something because of me, for instance, you know? As in like Especially they also they- own the stock. Right, especially if they don't necessarily um, understand why they're investing in whatever, you know. But mm-hmm. but it's also, like I say, about the um, super investor type things where people, where they don't even say anything, but people are just following their filings and stuff and saying, I'm in it because so-and-so's in it. 
you know? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for more professional investors who, like, just are finding something because I mentioned it and then doing their own working and stuff, you know, that's not a problem. I don't mind that at all. But, yeah, I do get emails from people and stuff that do worry me just because, you know, they're basically just going on faith of that I wrote it up and talked about it and they read it and they have some understanding of what I've said and stuff. But that's basically all that it is, is why they own this thing. And so that's unsettling sometimes. Mm-hmm. This next question, how does Andrew feel about finally being verified on Twitter? <laughs> it's like Jeff just gave such a philosophical long answer in <laughs> mind. How does Andrew feel about I being I noticed you got the blue Twitter? check mark, right? Yeah, well, I mean, I'm supporting the cause, right? Like we've built okay. a business off of Twitter, so I'm supporting Elon. I upgraded to a blue so it's not like mm-hmm. uh, I'm verified because I'm cool. I'm verified because I'm just supporting the cause. But to my knowledge, I believe they temporarily suspended the ability to do that. Oh. So uh, the way I think about it in Twitter is we've obviously grown focus compounding, our podcast, everything. Mm-hmm. And Twitter's been like the best marketing uh, yep. generator for that. So how much have we benefited from it? I thought, hey, eight bucks a month is a small price to pay to give it back. So... Uh, that's what I did. And that's why I'm verified. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Twitter, uh, YouTube yep. and, um, and podcasting things, which are not some giant corporation, which, uh, that we could, bend, you know, I mean, it's, it's some independent stuff, but those things together are really how we've reached everything. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Ralph, shout out to Ralph. If you're interested in, um, reports that are very much like Jeff's mm-hmm. old singular diligence reports, uh, go to his uh, website, Midstory Ventures, and he's got a few, uh, yeah. a, a handful of very detailed uh, reports. He's right, actually- Right, which he's st- still doing, yeah. So mm-hmm. like, obviously we talk about senior diligence, that's something that I did before and then do not do anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he's, if you wanna continue to get things about uh, detailed reports of several thousand words and everything on one particular stock, that's the place to go. Yeah, I Midstoryventures.com. Mean, I mean, look at this, you could see, I mean, this is on OTCM. I mean, it's very, very, very in depth, very long, uh, high quality research. And, you know, I, full disclosure, he's actually uh, done work with Jeff on different things as well uh, for different positions. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if Ralph is looking for business or not, but if you ever want somebody to profile a stock for you, um, he does great work. And he taught me how to surf. I mean, what could be better than that? Oh, yeah. Right? Does great work and could teach you how to surf. <laughs> he lives in California. So that was. That was cool. Yes. Tell me how to serve. There you go. Shout out to Ralph. Okay. Uh, next question. When there are unconsolidated subsidiaries, how can you be confident there isn't something scary on their balance sheet, uh, which might destroy future earnings? So we talked about NACL and their unconsolidated uh, you know, entities. How do you typically think about that? Well, it depends. So first of all, are you in the U.S. or in some other country and stuff? You know, It's easier if you're in the United States, the company's in the U.S. and you're doing it that way um NACA actually includes as an exhibit the balance sheets of all their unconsolidated subsidiaries it would then be reading the notes on the consolidation and possibly talking to management stuff about it um they're basically the same sort of things that apply to the idea of off balance sheet items same thing you know like if someone says off balance sheet items um are some huge number but it's all because it's you know a bank and these are credit lines that might be totally normal and then other ones you hear things that are not totally normal. Um, so I think uh, consolidation, we've talked about it before, like fraud and all those things. Consolidation is one of the things that you can play with. 
and in particular consolidating on consolidating consolidating on consolidating mm-hmm. stuff like that is a way that you can definitely take advantage of things um and trick people um you can do it with derivatives you can do it with a few other things um many of these would can be found out by just talking with someone at the company by reading the notes and everything and understanding the legitimate business purposes for it you know uh i would say this just like in general and everything if someone says you know the sole purpose of this thing if if all you can figure out is the sole purpose of this thing is a tax thing or something then it's not really a legitimate transaction, right? Like we entered into this transaction purely to save on taxes, right? We entered, that should never be the answer from the perspective of um, tax accounting stuff. Likewise, from financial accounting, the answer should not be, we entered into this purely so that we can show higher revenues or earnings per share or less depreciation or whatever thing. If that happens as a result of like things that you could figure out without the fact they're reporting to you, then it's not a problem. So in the case of NACO, let's take that. Why are they not consolidated? It's not consolidated because like, it's a very clear case in terms of under US accounting rules. You do not consolidate something in which um, you could not basically provide the capital. Um, So you, you can't consolidate things in which you may be the financial beneficiary of them, which is basically the case with NACO. They're basically the sole financial beneficiary of those deals. Um, but there's no way in which you could provide the capital. In their case, the customers are providing all the capital. Um, that's not always been the case in all countries and and things, and uh, probably not very well understood by people of why you consolidate or don't consolidate. Um, there are bigger issues sometimes with consolidated stuff and unconsolidated in terms of... Um, Things I've seen, I'll give you an example. There was something that was a financial thing. It's not technically a bank or something, but it disclosed something that worried me. Very, you know, just like a sentence or whatever had said that, you know, we may buy back. We we may have an obligation under certain things to buy back loans that we've um, sold on to someone else, basically. So they have a loan, they sell to someone else. We might have to buy it back sometimes. Um, That disclosure is kind of weird in the first place because that's, you know, I mean, that might happen and whatever, but it's not a, um, I think it's more common to that. If you had a problem, you would discuss it and say, don't do this ever again. I don't want this in anything that I buy from you, you know, make sure this doesn't happen in the next batch than to actually force the company to buy it back. Uh, and then they bought back a really tiny amount in one quarter or something that I saw. And that I like is sort of a red flag or something to me about why would you buy back that when you only have a few customers and stuff. So you bought it back from a customer who's still a large customer was doing business with you or whatever, not a customer, but someone who's buying your loans. Um, so that is something that could potentially be a really big liability, right? So when we're talking about these things about, um, what does that mean? So it's just a few things, a few sentences of it or whatever, but it does raise the question of what exactly that means. And so it's just something you dig into, like talk to people, is this company basically saying that we're going to don't worry, you know, if it ever comes, if you ever really need us to, we'll buy this stuff back. So it's, you know, you're not really taking a risk here, you know, um, are they kind of doing that? And it's not on the balance sheet. It's not some, this is not something that's disclosed and that's really a lot of what's happening. Um, so that's a potential thing. You saw that again with the bank things, when they actually did all draw on their credit lines, 
you know, banks had to tell them you're not really supposed to all draw your credit line, you know, COVID. That's not what they're here for is to do that and everything and to talk them down from doing that. Um, so I think it's just a question, like I said, a legitimate aspect of it. And um, it's important as an economic thing, not as an accounting thing to understand. Basically, the thing that you're worrying about is they're trying to trick you. That their reason for doing this stuff is presentational, right? So there's not a legitimate reason for why it's broken up that way. Um, and we talked a ton about that in the last podcast, about all of those kinds of things, about you know fraud and all of that. And the simple answer is that you know, it's just, it should always have a simple easy to understand business explanation for what you're looking at. And it's not, this is just how we want to present our financials, which is often what it is that they'll say, well, it didn't break a rule that we did it this way, but you know, why are they doing that in some of these cases? I mean, sometimes like, why are they doing that with the subsidiary thing is, um, you know, let's take banks and stuff back in the financial crisis. It's to look like you're less leveraged than you are. Right. Um, we, we have to understand why they're doing into, you know, what does it really mean and stuff? You know, why do banks sometimes use some capital things that they own this, but not that if they're being honest with you in all cases, it's for a regulatory reason. Why do you own this Greek debt or whatever? Cause it counts the same as other sovereign debt that I can own in, you know, in my European bank. So that's why I own it. Um, you know, and if they're honest about that, then this isn't a problem, but a lot of times they'll be evasive and not honest and whatever. And so you can use these things to present things one way or another, but it's not something that's unique to subsidiary things, you know, Groupon and whatever did things with like sales and billings, um, you know, conf kind of conflating those terms. Um, you can do it with all sorts of different things. You could do it by misreporting the number of users you have or whatever. It's just whatever you direct people to, to look at. So in the case of subsidiaries, often it's to, you're using a lot. Uh, it's usually to make your balance sheet look smaller than it is. So you're probably using a lot of debt. You're using a lot of liabilities and you also have a lot of assets. It makes it look like you have higher returns on equity, lower leverage, things like that than you really do, right? So using the bank example, that's what was happening. It both inflated the idea of what the return on equity was and stuff, but it also made it look different than it, what was really happening. Um, it, there's other things you can do. I mentioned last week, I think a company basically hid like startup losses by doing a subsidiary thing. So anything where there's related parties that you buy out and stuff, affiliated companies, and then you buy them out, you start things and then you buy them. That stuff's all very open to uh, abuse. Uh, you know, acquisitions in general are, but serial acquisitions of things you already own part of. You know, anytime a company says, oh, we went from owning 10% of this to 51% of this. Now we own 81% of this. Now we own 100% of this. And so that changed the accounting thing. Get, those are lots of ways that you can, you know, do all sorts of things to change how it looks. So he did ask you, how can you be confident that there isn't something scary on their balance sheets? I mean, nowadays, I don't, I'm assuming this was after 2008, they had to, dis I mean, a 10K will disclose, we don't have any off balance sheet items. I mean, so how can you feel confident then? Right. Um, you have to feel confident about the people running it and the clarity of the explanation. That has to make sense. It has to be candid and the right people have to be running it. Um, if that isn't the case, then, you know, uh, I would avoid it, you know. Um, there, 
in terms of what's probably hiding on a lot of companies' balance sheets and things and what might happen, I think some things are more likely than others. Uh, for big public companies and stuff, it's probably uncertainty about tax, future tax uh, assessments the governments different places will have of what taxes they actually owe. I think is a reasonable one for a company that you look at and you think, oh, this is a good company and whatever and stuff they haven't really disclosed of what they're doing. Um, and you could probably detect that and seeing what the tax rate is versus what it likely should be. And so I, I think as of today, the most common one of companies that you otherwise would feel fine is the thing that's hiding is that they're funneling stuff in such a way through certain jurisdictions to reduce their taxes relative to what the really where their businesses operate. Got it. Okay. Next question. What are your thoughts on investing in range bound markets with compressing PEs? He said, for example, the seventies, uh, what parallelisms do you draw from that period? Vitaly Katzen Nelson has a book on the subject. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the, I mean, that was a period with high inflation. Mm -hmm. So maybe that same thing would happen now. Um, maybe it wouldn't, you know, we don't know, uh, generally investing in things that will only pay off far into the future and that are kind of short the need for money. So they, they don't really have a good funding situation. So they have high PEs. They need to get funds from somewhere and they're only going to pay off in the far future are the things you would want to avoid. Whereas things that can pay out now, um, are more things that you'd be interested in. So that's just a duration thing again of like, you know, things that have lower things that have immediate cash flows paying out now in some way mm -hmm. are usually going to be more attractive than things that require more cash in. So things that can flow cash out and now, uh, as opposed to things that can only flow cash out in the far away future and need cash flows into the, the organization now are more the things to avoid. So take the last 10 years or whatever and reverse it, right? Like what worked, you know, your tech giants and your things like that. That's the thing that's most flipped is that that kind of approach wouldn't work. Something that you have to lose money up front that you have to get venture money for, or borrow money for, or issue equity for, and that's only going to pay off in the far future. You know, that's part of my questioning of, some of this streaming stuff of these big entertainment companies. I don't know if it makes a ton of sense today. If we think about how much they're losing, when they're losing it, when they expect to turn cash flow positive on those things and all that, I don't know if that adds value, but you know, for a while there, people really liked it and everything. And maybe they will in the future investors and they reward in the market and everything. But I don't know on a real economic basis, if that makes sense in the kind of period that you're talking about here, the, the, the parks business at Disney might be more valuable than you think. And the, the um, Disney Plus might be less valuable than you think. And if we live in a world that was always the 2010s, that might not be true. Maybe Disney Plus would make a lot of sense in the 2010s in terms of what the market looked like then. Mm -hmm. uh, next question. In the last pod, Jeff used average return on equity to price to book value as approximation of forward return. Many Japanese net nets these days are implying plus 20% future return on equity based on this calculation. How should one handicap the book value and current asset value of many net nets that have had huge inventory build in 2022? Um, well, I mean, it depends on your assessment of the situation. It could be a little hard. 
Uh, generally, what will happen is obviously if sales decline, the inventory will turn into cash. So it basically reduces the enterprise value. So it's not wrong to give you extremely high value, uh, extremely high forward expectations of returns. We talked about that with the receivables at Encore Wire and how that can kind of hide the fact that if where people would say, oh, well, if it goes back to what it was before, it's actually not that cheap on EV to EBITDA or whatever. Yeah, but the EV can't be what it is today because part of what's hidden on the balance sheet is stuff that has to be unwound back out as cash if it shrinks. Um, obviously, return on assets and all that can be lower if you're going to continuously have big inventory build, right? Mm-hmm. So it's a thing industry by industry to judge. Japanese uh, consumer inflation has been really low, but like um, the stuff that's exposed to the overall world producer stuff um, is not low. So there could be some things way up the chain of production, um, you know, heavy industrial stuff that is far away from consumer um, that you could see that this might be legitimate, that there's actually not a huge build in terms of the actual number of units and everything. It's huge pricing pressure, right? We've seen that all over the world. So a lot of the inventory build could be not, uh, could, could be something that might continue into future periods. Whereas I don't think you see the same, you shouldn't be seeing the same inventory build in things that sell to Japanese consumers. Next question is a firm dead in the water. AFRM. Firm holdings. You could look at the stock chart. I mean, I'm sure it's going to look like every, um, you know, COVID mania stock. Yeah. So it looks like it came public in uh january of 2021 around 100 bucks a share maybe 99 dollars it ran to 162 bucks and now it currently sits at 17 dollars a share so is this the whole buy now pay later yeah mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so the question is really how they're funding themselves um so if we look at the balance sheet and then the quarterly we could get some idea of this but what you really have to look is the 10q um okay so basically there everything is financed as um long-term debt that seems unlikely but maybe i mean um so if you look at the balance sheet from the quarterly basis here, the only thing that's kind of excess is cash and equivalents. Short-term investments and accounts receivable taken together are pretty close to long-term debt, correct? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So basically like $2.7 billion in accounts receivable plus $1.2 billion in short-term investments added together, you're getting basically long-term debt. So you have cash that you can burn of about $1.5 billion. Um, I don't know what... Well, let's look at income statement. I'm not sure things like cash flows and stuff are a good idea to look at with a company like this. So let's see. That's on a quarterly basis. So you can see on a quarterly basis they're losing money on an operating basis. In fact, they're burn. They're you know if if that's a cash burn, um, then that would be at the rate of about a billion a year. And burning their equity, right? Look at the shares outstanding, the growth. Yeah. Um. So. That would get you about six, you know, at the current, without things changing and stuff, of course, that would get you about a year and a half until you uh, run out of money. Um, 
but the the question is obviously what's changed in terms of which we could see in the 10q probably yeah i mean you'd have to look at the 10q and everything it's really i think the question is like what's changed in terms of the funding costs for uh interest rates and all of that and what that means um we can't really get that from here i i think that's the number that really matters um and then whether things get better or worse as they grow so far the pattern isn't that they get a lot better but what are your thoughts um, on like their business model like financing a domino's pizza or a 20 dollar purchase on amazon like what are your thoughts on just like the business model that they're trying to uh you know i i really should say get up and going because they don't really have a business model i would say if you look at their profits well so instead of going at it from the consumer side um you go at it from the seller side so it's basically financing intended to drive marginal um consumption for the seller so let's say you're on amazon or whatever um it's basically it was what we were talking about with like john deere and all that kind of stuff mm -hmm. right like part of the business of um sleep number or whatever is to offer credit to uh goose sales of its product mm -hmm. and it's built into how you sell the product right it's built into how you sell lots of products um that offering credit as part of it is how you generate the sales and then you take credit losses i mean in the olden days these companies uh department stores and things ran their own credit business as opposed to outsourcing it to commodity and you know uh, what it you know synchrony and some of the other ones um so um i think generally it's probably a better business to go from the consumer side because you know they have less bargaining power and all of that now if they're really small businesses it's a different story right so like if i provide you with some uh you know point of sale thing or something and you like that you like the technology that it runs on the interface that it has and there's a million small businesses that are selling my product or whatever okay you know that that might work but if you're selling it through big companies that are um you know like i was saying like you know big e-commerce things and whatever then you know you don't have as much bargaining power on that uh you know early on generally it looked like the spreads that they were making are insufficient given what you would expect normal credit losses to be so maybe if they scaled up to a huge level that would change but all the ones that i looked at i you know their original business as it was priced was not at a level that would make sense right Mm -hmm. Um, and that's assuming like 0% interest type stuff, uh, you know, interest fed funds rates being near zero and everything money, not having any value. Mm -hmm. Um, obviously, you know, you, you have here, we just showed you there's some financial debt that you would have on it, which would, you'd be underwater on that because you have assets that don't have yield on them, like receivables, they don't yield anything. And yet you're financing it with debt that does have yield. Um, so you, you know, to that extent, as your balance sheet gets bigger, you are in a more and more net negative position. Um, unless that the yield would be sufficient with the expected credit losses in the future that you'd be making a lot of money off of that. I mean, it's, I don't know. It's possible, right? Because, I mean, there are companies that, you know, credit card companies and stuff that that's their entire business to do that. Certainly as the way that this was originally set up, that's not, um, how do I put this? 
you know, we talked about Carmart or something. It, it isn't set up in a way that looked to me like Carmart um, in terms of what the business would be in terms of making money on that spread. Mm-hmm. So, um, who knows? It reminds me of like Carvana, which is the same issue. And looking at it is like, well, if it grows really, really fast, gets really, really big, there might be a way to scale this to the point that it's not losing money. It's not obviously got an issue that seemed insurmountable to me. Like, like Chewy was one that I didn't know. Uh, there's one in Europe that's kind of similar to that. Um, it's hard just like, even if you get all the way up to scale and stuff, the actual product economics of what you're doing aren't really that great. Um, so, I mean, here, your, your, your idea, right. Is that you need a lot of people not to pay quickly, right? Cause if they pay quickly, you get nothing. So you need to actually produce a bunch of receivables where they're not paying, but then you need them not to default. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I, I had to say I've been wrong all the time about consumer credit this way, where I would expect way more people to default on credit cards and things like that than do. I'm not entirely sure why people pay their consumer credit that way. It's not even that easy for these companies to hound people. I mean, most people can even just avoid taking their calls and everything. And, you know, um, it is just surprising to me mm-hmm. that the, that, that it is at, I would have ex- expect more differences between um, cars, for instance, you know, which is collateral that they can seize versus situations in which they can't seize anything possibly. Um, and I am surprised. I've always been surprised by that, but so it may work out better than I thought because I always underestimate how much consumer credit gets paid off. Got it. Uh, next question. How do you think about selling if fundamentals are deteriorating? Should you ever give management the benefit of the doubt? If so, for how long? Um, hmm. This is probably assuming that you went into the situation not expecting the fundamentals to get worse. So this is probably realizing you made a mistake. How much should you give, you know, how much time should you give until you uh, sell the stock? I mean, depending on what you mean by fundamentals, if it's something that I think is very fundamental to the actual business and the product economics and all of that, I might be fast to sell. Mm -hmm. Um, As opposed to like reported results of some things. So, um, uh, probably pretty fast, but it depends. You need kind of key inside. You need key information that's detailed uh, about like the actual. Um, like you, you just mentioned Domino's, for instance. Like if if you have decreasing franchise level stuff, mm-hmm. I'd be pretty fast to sell, probably. You know? Decreasing like like that's the what economics I consider- of running a franchise, or you mean yeah. like less franchises? Yeah, like like I think um, what's it called? There's a period where the um, Burger King franchise owner. Um, so does it is it restaurant brands? What does it use yeah. its name? QSR. As? Yeah. 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 Um, so like the actual Burger King um, system, I think had okay had fine looking financials at the parent company level at the the um, and there was evidence of not good stuff happening at the franchise level. In those kinds of cases, I'd be very fast to sell. I think. So if you mean that kind of fundamentals, I would, if you, you know, but it gets complicated because some people will say the fundamentals are declining. If some cyclical things 
has worse earnings this year than last year, they, they'd say that's the fundamentals, right? Uh-huh. It has to be more fundamental than that. Uh, you know, rapidly falling gross margin, you know, I probably sell pretty fast. I'll sell on gross margin deterioration much faster than other investors probably. If I wasn't expecting it and it happened, um, that would really worry me. So. Does that come from just the type of investing that you do though, right? Where if you're going to invest mm-hmm. in very like predictable, high quality businesses, um, you know, gross margins falling, that would be like a huge surprise to you because, you know, probably nine times out of 10, you're investing in it because you think that's something that's going to be very persistent. Yes, absolutely. But, you know, look at like meta or something. If you're watching carefully the fundamentals of like how the business actually works, um, you might have sold that fast and stuff. And if you're waiting for the financial results, not uh, to look as good, it lags by a significant amount. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So like some people may have been paying a lot more attention to attention to privacy things or how users are engaging with it or whatever. So if we mean like that kind of fundamentals, like customer behavior and all that, uh, then yeah, I'd be pretty fast to sell. But sometimes it's hard to understand exactly what's happening with the business when we're just talking about they had a bad quarter, mm-hmm. you know, or something like that. Yeah. Got it. Um, let's see. Next question. Free cash flow plus growth works fine for cash flow generative companies. How do you think of valuation for companies that are growing and generate low cash flow to income question mark or low cash flow slash income question mark? Would you invest in such companies? Uh, cash tag leet and cash tag EACO come to mind. So those are generally companies that are probably growing rapidly with serious working capital needs. Um, as compared to the vast majority of investors, I avoid those stocks more, which is to say, I if we're kind of looking at what biases I have versus others and stuff, low PE, high growth, whatever, like, you know, it seems cheap by certain earnings measures, but the cash flow from operations is not so great. Um, those are the ones that I would avoid more. Um, that's also more common with retail type things. And, um, and, uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm not the one to sell on those kinds of companies. Uh, I'd be the last person to buy them. It doesn't mean I'd never buy them or whatever, but other people will buy them before I do. I'm more concerned by build up in receivables, inventory, whatever that never turns into cash, especially over long periods of time. But obviously that doesn't mean it's bad for a business. Um, that's growing very rapidly. It could be totally justified, right? If you're growing the business 50% a year, then you can't generate cash flow because you have to invest in that much more inventory, that much more in receivables and all that. But uh, yeah, inventory building stuff makes me nervous and I like cash flow generation. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see. Uh, who has the best annual report or who is your favorite to read? Oh, um, hmm. That's a good question. I'm not sure. I actually have no answer to that at all. Let's see if we have any other questions. I know we got a lot of stocks here. Okay. The amount of people that have asked for job, J-O-B, professional services, market cap 83 million, enterprise value 65 million. Uh, they provide permanent and temporary professional and industrial staffing and placement services in the United States. There's been like five people that have requested this ticker. Um, uh, I wouldn't be able to say, to be honest. Um, no thoughts on the company. It's a micro cap. 
or nano cap. It's micro cap and it's an NYSE. Yeah. You know, so that would generate, uh, I mean, NYSE American. Mm-hmm. So it's a, you know, it's an Amex stock. So that would presumably mean that it was an old company that re, I think that's what it said yeah. there that changed its name. Mm-hmm. So usually that means it's been public for a long time and then changed its name. Um, yeah. And it's a penny stock, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 72 cents. High turnover, though. Yeah. Yeah. You could definitely get in and out of this stock. Um, no thoughts on it? Yeah, I don't. Um, nope. No thoughts on it. Okay. Interesting. Um, we could start going through stocks for some snap judgments. Let's see. Scott's okay. Miracle Grow. Is that a SMG? Let's look at that. Chemicals. Um, engages in the manufacture, marketing, and sale of products for lawn, gardening in the United States and internationally. Um, let's see. They operate founded in 1868 and headquartered in Ohio. EBITDA sales 1.6. Uh, 10-year median margin 13.5. Return on or return on invested capital fell past couple of years, kind of lumpy as well. Just looking at the gross margins, kind of all over the place. 2013 it was 35%. 2022 is 22%. Um, looks like operating margins have declined. So here's something interesting: is that revenue has mm-hmm. gone from 2.774 billion in 2013 to 3.9 billion. But gross profit has gone from 978 million to 873 million. But I guess that was 2022, so maybe something happened there because in 2021 it was 1.4 billion. Does anything stick out to you? Right. So it was very high during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Like revenue was high, gross profit, operating profit were high during the pandemic. Um, no, I also don't know. It doesn't say anything about it, but I also don't know if. It has anything to do with um, if it was affected at all by marijuana. Um, mm-hmm. That's what actually what I thought this company was. <laughs> oh no yeah. no no! Um, but you know it's a lawn care company. Yep. You know so like you have yeah there you go Grubex. So like that's a good example of the kind of thing they sell. Grubex is a good example. Um, so it's to make mo- many of these products are to make your lawn look green and not covered in bugs mm-hmm. that are killing it and stuff. Um, Looks like they have some debt. Market cap, $3.4 billion. Enterprise value, $6.2 billion. They have a lot of debt, mm-hmm. yeah. It's about half of their enterprise value, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we could look at cash flow statement, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's it looks a lot harder to evaluate since the pandemic, right? Mm-hmm. If we could have just cut it off in 2019 or whatever, I think we could have evaluated this company a lot easier, said it was a lot more predictable and everything, and then we start seeing things um, that they weren't expecting the pandemic, so they get a boom of business, but they weren't built up for that. Then after that, as you can see in like changing working capital and all that, so first the cash generates a ton of cash because obviously sales and everything go up and wasn't expected. This puts pressure on the existing inventory and all that following year. They invest too much into all of that stuff in reaction to the pandemic. Then that all dies down after that, 
I mean, that's the pattern that it looks like over the last three years. You know, the boom we weren't expecting, bust we weren't expecting, you know, mm-hmm. and that's what we're seeing here. So uh, before that, things look a lot more predictable, whether it's CapEx, whether it's this pace of, you know, any of these things. Um, we don't have huge swings in the working capital, and so it looks a lot more predictable before then. Um, however, what's the current stock price, uh, mar- market cap, I should say? $3.4 billion. Yeah, I mean, so it's like 20 times, you know, the EV is, you know, with the debt is a lot higher. So on a leverage basis, it looks fine. But if we're going pre-pandemic, it does look like you're like 20 times free cash flow or something, including the debt. But you're leveraged, so it's not really fair to include all the debt. And, you know, um, I mean, you can argue about whether it's fair or not. What I mean is your return could be higher, mm-hmm. right, on the upside. could be worse on the downside because you have a debt. So, um if we take out the pandemic, it 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 um doesn't look incredibly expensive to me, but it doesn't look cheap. And uh, that's about all that I think I have to say about it. Um, I can't evaluate anything since the pandemic. It's so wildly different from what the business looked like every year before. Mm-hmm. CarMax, so we've actually spoken about CarMax a few podcasts ago. Spent a good amount of time on that company um let's see let's look at speaking of distributors uh fastenal right uh trading companies and distributors 29.5 billion dollar market cap 29.6 billion ev uh, currently trading around 29 times earnings uh 55 times free cash flow four and a half times ev to sales um Look at the 10 year revenue Kager, 8.1%. What do you say, Jeff? Mm-hmm. So I like the business. It's not a value stock. Uh, first of all, it does fasteners, which really means like screws, basically, is, you know, the more mm-hmm. colloquial term for what we're talking about is really more like screws than like, um, than anything, if you can't understand what they mean by that. But they describe that there. So mm-hmm. exactly what you expect. Um, so, I like the business. It's a distributor. It has a ton of different um, ways of selling the product. Uh, it's close to the customer. Um, a lot of this is fairly high frequency stuff that they're selling. Um, they even did things with like um, vending machine type stuff and, and whatever. I think they it's a very, you want to call it wide mode or whatever, in terms of its uh, position in the industry, it'll be durable, right? Mm-hmm. It's rarely cheap, and I don't know that it's cheap now. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, the actual business that they're in doesn't grow very fast at all. So, they've grown fast, which is great. They're the Peter Lynch sort of thing. that They're a growth stock over the last decades from taking a lot of market share. But the actual business, the end markets that they're in do not grow much. So, they grow very, very little. So, th- this is a, you know, really good business. But it's, you know nine times book 29 times pe mm-hmm. um it's you know it's a nifty 50 type situation here it's a it is really a very good business as were many of those uh but it's you know a very expensive price look how predictable their I mean, or consistent yeah. their operating margin is 21.5, 21.4, 21.1, 21.4, 20.1, 20.1, 20.1, 19.8, 20.2, 20.3. Yeah, and if you look at the end part of that, I actually think that 
the I don't know if they said this, but my guess is that the biggest disruption was inflation because I don't think that they instantaneously repriced their products. And so there's a gap between mm-hmm. pricing of on the buy side and the sell side. And I think you see that show up in gross margin. Um, so I actually think that just like a steady rate of inflation would lead to a more stable um, margin, whatever that was, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, super predictable. I put in the same category we talked about Sherwin-Williams. Mm-hmm. I put in the Sherwin-Williams category. There's your S&P 500 stock. You know, this and Sherwin-Williams, if you want to buy two, I mean, i buy rather buy two than than um, one, right? So if you let me buy two, could you buy these two? Yeah. Now, even over 20 years or something, though, are they too expensive? Mm-hmm. So... Can we get the key ratios? Yeah, I put... And see if it's mm-hmm. ever even traded. Yeah, I mean, if you're looking at it, it looks like the cheapest point, according to this, it was in 2018 and got to just under 20 times earnings but it's been you know 33 times earnings 31 28 23 27 27 just under 20 27 33 and now right. we're you know way higher as well and i would caution that since the pandemic it has grown it has shrunk in real terms you know like the evidence is if we look at when we look at things like sales gross profit whatever and we think about inflation it really hasn't grown. It's like when I was talking about, you know, Amazon, whatever, like already for a while now, year over year, these things are shrinking. Um, and this really, when you compare the nominal numbers, which came down at the same time that inflation went up, means that this business is really not bigger than it was right before the pandemic. So um, I like it a lot, but it is, you know, it's like, like to give you an example, EV to EBIT, right? Or EV to pre-tax. So I would have a hard time paying a PE after taxes and stuff of 22 times for much of anything. This is pre-tax you're paying 22 times, right? Um, You know, we're talking about something that for a normal PE, like historically for a normal company would be like 50% lower than here. So I don't mean that to take anything away from the quality of the company or the durability or what it's likely to be in the future. I just, you know, it, this is no way a value stock. So um, I like it in the future. I don't think it will be a tremendously fast grower. I mean, I already thought that when I looked at the, you know, we looked at the MROs and passed on Fastenal, did Granger and MSC Industrial. It's not because we didn't like this company. We actually like this company best. But given the price and what we thought future growth would be, it was the least attractive of the three at the time in our minds um, because it was priced like a tremendous growth stock of the decades that it had before. We already thought that was going to slow down and the price is just so high that you could get multiple contraction. But as a business, it's a favorite of mine of those three. Mm-hmm. Got it. Cool. Well, we are coming up on two hours on the focus compounding podcast. I want to thank everybody so much for sending in your questions via Twitter uh, be on the lookout for a call for questions. I try to do it about once a month uh, where I tweet it out and then we go over all of your questions on the podcast. Uh, so to be on the lookout for that, you could follow me on Twitter at, at Focus Compound. Uh, if you're listening to us on the podcast, be sure to check out all of our backlog. Go to focuscompounding.com to get content going all the way back to 2005 from Jeff, uh, blog posts, uh, we are coming up on five years from the podcast. So like I said on a few podcasts ago, Jeff, there is no other investor on the internet 
that has more information on how they think about investing than you and focus compounding, uh, which is awesome. So if you're interested in learning more about our money management services, you can reach out to me directly at Andrew at focus compounding dot com. Uh, in this podcast, we did use QuickFS uh, to go over all of the stocks. And if you do want to sign up, go to quickfs.net and tell them that you came from Focus Compounding in the checkout. I thank everybody so much for all of the support. Thank you so much for tuning in with Jeff and myself. And we'll see you in the next podcast. Take care.